What's up? I'm B and welcome to my channel. Today I am so excited to bring you a Q&A that I did with Jeremy Jernigan who has quite the list of credentials. Jeremy was on staff at churches for two decades. He was the lead pastor at a multi-site mega church. He is an adjunct professor and while he's no longer on church staff, he does speak and consult regularly at churches. He also started Communion Wine Co., which exists to bring people together around wine to experience Jesus in new ways. He is an author. He has his own blog. All that's to say, Jeremy is extremely knowledgeable about a lot of the topics that we talk about on this channel, and I am so grateful that he took the time to sit down with me and answer your questions because yes, every question I asked him was submitted by one of you. And I also want to say thank you to everyone who submitted a question. I feel like it takes a lot to put yourself out there. The questions that were asked were very vulnerable. They were serious and they are important. So thank you if you submitted a question and thank you if you're taking the time to watch this because I think the topics discussed in this video are so important and they can lead to some really great conversations in the comment section and in your real life. I will have Jeremy's link tree linked in the description box down below so you can find him everywhere that he exists on social media. And if you wouldn't mind when you're done watching this interview, please go into the comment section. Thank Jeremy for taking the time to come on my channel and show him some love down there. And without any further ado, let's get to the Q&A. The first question we have is, ooh, I've been thinking about how Christians feel slash are told to feel about alcohol. Yeah, that's actually not a question, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's a sentiment a lot of people feel. They're very unsure on alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, we started a, I don't know what you'd call it, people want to call us the church it's not a church it's not a ministry it's a for-profit uh it's called communion wine co and we created essentially this company out of my experiences uh in the church where i found a lot of things i wanted to talk about were not things that a lot of christians wanted to talk about and so there's a tension there of like where where do we talk about these things where do we create space for these things and there are churches that i think do a better job of this and there are churches that kind of struggle with this a little bit so we found like, what is something that draws people together? And <laughs> alcohol tends to be one of those things. Uh, in particular, a nice glass of wine. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I was living in Oregon at the time. And if you don't know, Oregon has, I mean, second only to Napa as to just incredible wine region. So I fell in love with that. And I noticed some of the best conversations I had with people was over a glass of wine at a winery. And so we started realizing like, maybe there's something there. And then the Bible speaks a lot about wine, uh, not not beer, not water, as far as drinks go. Uh, there's water in purification sense, but uh, when it comes to alcohol or, or a drink, uh, it's wine, and there's a lot there, and it's it's not all negative, as, as many mm -hmm. people think, and so we've just started exploring that, and so our tagline for that is we say that we bring people together around wine to experience Jesus in new ways, and so I'm not sure. Uh, there's probably lots of questions that go with that, but uh, so far, God hasn't struck us down with any lightning bolts, and uh, it seems to be working. And so we do weekend retreats where we do wine tasting and, and a whole bunch of things and take people actually to where they can meet the winemakers. Then we also do evenings where we'll take over a bar and uh, we'll do a custom wine flight and then usually like a Q&A type format. And uh, it's been really cool. So I'm a big fan of it. I have, I think, only gotten one really nasty email so far from people. Well, that's so, good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I figured that would be one that you would be pro. You'd say, yeah, I think we're okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good with it. 
Mm -hmm. I actually had somebody who commented when I posted this on my community tab that talking about Jesus around wine, even though they're not religious, sounds like a really cool experience. And so I think that's an awesome way to do it, to bring people to have these in conversations. Yeah. People tend to be a little bit more honest if they have a glass of wine in them. So that also helps a little bit. True. (laughs) All right. The next one is, is it really frowned upon to have tattoos? Why the association is tattoo equals bad. It's not a vice for most people and it can be a beautiful form of art. Yeah. So I don't know. uh, I don't know what you did to prompt all these questions. I'm assuming there was a photo of me that prompted this one. So I have, you can't see it. One of my arms is, is got a sleeve on it. Uh, So I am, I am, you know, uh, on stage at churches when I'm teaching and I'm obviously visibly uh, having a tattoo. I think it's cultural mainly uh, with tattoos. And I think there's a generation you can kind of see where certain people are inherently uncomfortable with that and, you know, have some questions, have, have a little bit of hesitation there. I don't know what the magic age is, but there's like a certain age where most people just don't care and Mm -hmm. they see it as art. They see it as a way uh, of expression. So I think that's changing culturally. There is, there is a little bit uh, that gets to the faith angle here. And Mm -hmm. so people go, well, don't you know, you know, the Bible forbids that. And so just, uh, just to be a little snarky, I'm a bit contrarian. I have a verse, see if I can show you this. I have a verse right here. Uh, It's Leviticus 1928. And I'm sure all of your uh, listeners and and watchers are are very familiar with Leviticus 1928 because Leviticus is what we all read. Mm -hmm. That's the verse that prohibits. Uh, marking your body or tattooing your body and I tattooed that on my body because I thought that's a great way to kind of show a bigger conversation of I think what Jesus is inviting us into and uh, so I love that idea I'd seen someone else do that I'm like you know what I'm gonna do that so I have all sorts of things all my tattoos are story uh, generators and so they're things I'm an introvert I know you're an introvert uh, mm-hmm. it's hard for introverts <laughs> sometimes to to like naturally talk to people and just come out of our shells so mm-hmm. I just put a whole bunch of talking points on my arm. And if anybody asks me about any of them, I have a natural conversation to go to. And so I think it's been amazing. I'm a big fan of tattoos. I'm a big fan of art. And again, if you get an artist you love, you get to wear their art on you at all times. So I think it's super mm-hmm. cool. I agree. Do you have any tattoos or is that outing you to ask you that? No, I do. I have one. Uh, I'm sure as you know, both my sisters, they have tattoos on their feet. And so, and my mom as well. So we've all got a meaningful oh, phrase on our foot okay. yeah mm-hmm. yep <laughs> the next one is uh must we really respect our parents no matter what even coming from verbal abuse restrictions invasion of privacy manipulation i've been taught to give respect back even when i don't get it because parents deserve respect regardless but i disagree shouldn't there be a part that states children are people who must be respected as well yes so that comes from the Old Testament. That's the that's the Ten Commandments, and this could be a podcast by itself. This this question to answer this well is going to be mm-hmm. tricky. I'll, I'll try to do it quickly. But <laughs> uh, the problem we have is that's that's taking a concept from the Old Covenant, which is the Old Testament. Uh, what what Jews today would refer to as the Hebrew Bible. There's 613 regulations like that of things to do or or not to do. Uh, the whole honoring your parents is one of those that comes in the the Big Ten as we call them. Here's, here's the, I don't know if this is the most controversial thing we'll talk about today, but here's somewhat controversial thought is if you're a Christian and you follow Jesus, you're actually not bound uh, by the 10 commandments, the way you probably were raised to think you were. And you see that in the new Testament because Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. 
if something has been fulfilled, if an order that you uh, put into a restaurant has been fulfilled, that means it's been completed, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You don't fulfill an order and then go pick up the order again. It's already done. It's fulfilled. So when the New Testament writers tell us that Jesus fulfilled it, we're not still living by it today. That would be to negate actually what Jesus is offering us. So we live through him because there was only one person that was able to fulfill all those regulations perfectly to embody what it was about. So we get to go to Jesus. So we can look at things like that and go, okay, that was a way in an ancient Near East culture to try to, uh, to, to move God's people forward. And there's a lot of things like that where given where they were, they're trying to take steps forward. And I think there's value in studying that and learning from that and helping us to appreciate Jesus in that. But we don't live by that today. So there is no, uh, no like, hey, you, you, it's, it's one of the big 10. You have to do this. I know that parents have used it like that. And, and I've heard these stories where, you know, they kind of beat their kids over the head with it. Like, hey, look, thus saith the Lord, you have to obey me. So I'd go to the New Testament and go, okay, well, we know what God looks like now. God looks like Jesus. So if God looks like Jesus, what do we see modeled? We see mutual submission. We see uh, self-sacrificial love. We see putting someone else's needs before yours. And so as a parent, uh, I have five kids. This is a chance for me every single day to live out the gospel. I, I have to choose to put their needs before mine. Is that easy? Not at all. But literally, I can tell this is what helps me, you know, to live out the gospel. So I would, I would encourage any parent, like this is a chance for you to practice literally what it means to follow Jesus if you want to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the other end of it, it's also a chance for you, not because they're your parent, but because if you do want to follow Jesus, this mutual submission thing goes all, all directions, right? We, we learn how to put someone else first. And so I would say, can you put your parent first? Can you honor them? Not out of uh, obedience to a law in the Old Testament, but just out of your dedication to Jesus. And I think if a child and a parent approached it from that point of view, it'd be very different. In the case of, of abuse, I, I do think you have to, you know, obviously draw some hard boundaries there. If a mm -hmm. parent is using that to, to do things that, you know, are not okay, I do think the child has the right to say, hey, uh, I want to submit to you as much as I can. I want to love you. I want to put you before me as much as I can. But hey, this isn't healthy for me. And that's super tricky, obviously, depending on how old you are, how old your parent is, what the relationship mm -hmm. is, you know, all of that. But that's kind of part of growing up is creating your own sense of identity. And certainly when you know, a person gets married, they all of a sudden have another person now that has their own family norms. And then you start mixing all those. You start looking at your parents and like, I thought this was normal and mm -hmm. they don't do that. And this is weird. And so I think it's, it's messy. But yeah, I think if we take the spiritual obligation out of it, it gets a little bit easier. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Well, I think it's just one of those things that people tend to throw out. There's a lot of like the little phrases from the Bible that people just toss it and then they don't go into the context of it. And so I think having a further explanation is really helpful for people to kind of feel free from the oppression maybe of those rules being given to them throughout their entire lives. So I well, think that's is helpful. Is, I've never met a Christian that follows all 613 <laughs> you know, laws of the old testament and so if someone yeah. is making that argument it's fairly easy to go okay well how come you know you're saying this now the problem is there's some christians that gotten really good at this and there's some mental gymnastics of well mm -hmm. the, you can categorize them differently that is not at all the way the covenant worked it was an all or nothing covenant uh, and yet we, we we try to make sense like we, we pick and choose so mm -hmm. here's a real easy way if your parents are using that to them just say okay you know what if we're gonna follow the ten commandments let's do it um, how are you doing on Sabbath keeping? 
just like, you know, ask that question back to the parent. The parent will be like, well, you know, I occasionally try to like rest on a Saturday or something and just go, oh, we're going to go to the Old Testament. Like Sabbath keeping was, you know, all or nothing. And if you did any kind of work at all on Sabbath, uh, the punishment, according to the Old Testament, was death. This was literally capital offense. So do we want to carry that out today? And obviously the answer is no. So then maybe we need to look at everything else in that covenant and Mm -hmm. do a little bit digging. I don't know why Christians get so crazy about this. If you're trying to follow Jesus, you're not following the old covenant. I I mean, you Mm -hmm. gotta, you gotta pick one. The whole book of Hebrews is all about that. So I, yeah, I I don't know. I I think sometimes we hold on to things and it's hard to change your thinking, but sometimes a lot of people are raised with that kind of you know, that focus. So it's good to kind of move forward. But I guess the next question relates to it because it is, how do you view progressive Christianity? Is it really progressive or is it a way to attract the minorities to later convert them? That's such a, it's it's phrased in such an interesting way. So, you know, this, I think, gets to the heart of like, what does it mean to be conservative? What does it mean to be progressive? How are we defining these labels? Mm-hmm. Some people would say things like, you know, we need we need to get Christianity back to the early church, back to the book of Acts. You know, we need to we need to back up our faith 2000 years, so which I would say that's never how God works. God never takes people back. God never says, hey, let's just revert back to something old. God is always in the business of the new. And so to assume that God wants us to revert back to some, you know, 2000 year old version of the church in a totally different culture. I think it's to totally miss what God is actually doing. So fundamentally, I think that puts me in the progressive camp to say, yeah, I think God is always moving forward. Now, that doesn't mean we throw everything out that came before us. The the Christian tradition is rich in history and people who have done it really well and people who have explained it really well. And I think there's there's a lot to learn from that and, and, you know, gleaning the good aspects of it. Mm -hmm. But we should be going forward. I mean, what's what is this all about? And you know, Jesus is is pretty clear. I make all things new. Well, it's like we're not going back to the book of Acts. We're not going back to the first century. He's making all things new today. So what does it look like today to live out our faith? And a lot of these questions uh I, I think are really about that. Like, what does it mean and to to keep growing in our faith? And I think it has to be this this kind of progressive foundation, not in the sense of dismissing everything, but just constantly going, All right, Jesus what's new and how do we learn from the the past? How do we take the very best of it, but keep growing, keep learning, keep leaning in. And this is where the Holy spirit, you know, plays a huge role. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The next one is, is it really possible to read the Bible with our 21st century eyes? How do you say something is open to interpretation and something is literal? I'm more of a, everything is a product of the society and every society becomes more and more complex, but that might sound like I'm cherry picking parts that favor me and the opinions that I have. That's a great question. And uh, that's, that's a question from someone who's pretty self-aware to acknowledge you know, the way they're reading it. The reality is everybody who ever reads the Bible reads the Bible like that. We all cherry pick. Mm-hmm. We all decide this is literal. This is metaphorical. And the the healthiest way we can handle this is to be aware of it and to try to to, to use that knowledge well, right? To go, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to look at this the way I want to look at it. How do I try to be as objective as possible? I have a master's degree in uh, biblical theology because I do want to study it more. I do want to learn more. And the further into that I went, you know, taking these classes, learning, 
I, I realized it's way more confusing than any of us even know. Because if you dive deeper into mm-hmm. this, and, and again, you get an advanced degree in this, you start learning all sorts of opinions people have, Christians, academics, right? Theologians throughout the ages have had on these same passages. And it just made me realize this is not easy. This is not simple. This is very hard to do. And so I think the answer is, yeah, I think the the Bible is is something that I do think still has immense value for us today, but you, you do have to interpret it. And to say otherwise, I think is silly. One of the things that just it irks me quicker than anything is the people who say, I just read the Bible for what it says. Mm-hmm. No, you don't. Nobody does. I don't read the Bible just for what it says. I have to interpret it, right? I have to interpret it through my lens, through my beliefs, through my experiences, all of that, through my understanding. Mm-hmm. And it's a very complex book written by a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of places mm-hmm. throughout a whole bunch of years of history. So to think that we're just going to you know, take a verse, mm-hmm. put it on a bumper sticker, call it a day and, and it's good, or put it on a meme, I just think you lose the beauty of what it is. So I, I do think it takes a little bit of work. That's why I love, I love reading theology books. Like I read the books that most people, you'd start reading it and you'd go to sleep. And you'd be like, this is so boring. <laughs> Who cares about this? I, I just love it because those are the ways I go, oh, I never, you know, if I understand this tradition in that culture, all of a sudden now I understand what they were trying to do. And there's so many examples like that. And as a preacher, I love unpacking that for people going, hey, I know you think this means this, but did you know this? And then mm-hmm. did you know this? How does it change? You know, and just the idea of people going, oh my goodness, this is incredible. So I, I think. I think we can say, yes, the Bible can be read today, uh, can be read in a beneficial way, but there should be some humility there from all of us to say, we're going to do our best. And when someone reads it differently than you, it doesn't make them a heretic, doesn't make them wrong. Uh, it just means that maybe they're seeing something that you're not seeing. And that's a great invitation mm-hmm. to move forward and go, okay, help, help me understand. How do you see that passage so much differently than I do? And that's, I think, the beauty of Christian community, what it could be right? Is when mm-hmm. we all are learning from each other going, here's, here's what makes sense to me. I think that's where the Holy Spirit and community can use multiple people because yeah. we believe that the Holy Spirit is real. There is only one Holy Spirit. So any Christian who disagrees with us or has a different interpretation than us has the same Holy Spirit. So that should lead us to a few questions of like, well, how's the Holy Spirit, you know, indwelling inside of them with their belief system. And I think there'd be a lot less, us versus them if we had that kind of mentality. And here's kind of a question that popped up while you were talking. Do you have any resources that you really enjoy or that you really trust to help people kind of figure out what's kind of beneath the text or to add more context when they're reading the Bible? Yeah, I'm trying to think of one place. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's why I think it's helpful in community. It's helpful to know people because there's so many topics. I mean, I read like a maniac. I try to read like a hundred yeah. books a year. And so Oof. I could give you a variety of books, depending on what the topic in particular, there's no gotcha. catch all book or catch all, mm-hmm. you know, go to Amazon. They'll answer all the questions. Uh, right. <laughs> there's just a lot of things, you know? And so I think, I think being around people that are interested in, in this conversation, reading people who are thinking about it, reading the people who they're reading and, you know, on and on. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the way I try to do it. All right. The next question is what is your stance on marijuana use for staff at churches when the use is legal or for people in general? This is fun. <laughs> I actually had this, I had this exact question presented to me when I was lead pastor 
had a staff member for medical reasons ask, you know, can I use mm-hmm. medicinal marijuana? I personally was okay with it. So I said, okay, I'll have to bring this before our board and see where we're at. And that was a fun elder meeting because we were all over the place on that conversation. Oh. And some of the elders were inherently just like, yeah, that makes sense, you know, and we don't see any issue with that. We had a couple of like doctors and, you know, psychologists on the board at that time. And they, they were the ones that were more, I would say, progressive on that subject. Mm-hmm. And we had others that, you know, were very uncomfortable with it. And ultimately at that point, this is a few years back now, at that point, the, the overarching concern was it wasn't federally legal. Uh, and so that was like, why would we allow our staff to do something that's not federally legal? That was where the board landed on that. And so we had to kind of wrestle with that. And then one of them had, who again was in the medical field had said, Hey, I will walk with this person. Let's try some other, you know, medication options before that. And then I'll bring it back to the board. If none of those work, I'll bring this back to the board as, Hey, this, this is something we'd like to try. And Mm -hmm. so you know, all in all, I don't think it was the worst response to, to try to figure out, hey, how do we actually move forward with this? Um, I, I think, I think, again, culturally, this is one that's changing dramatically, where my kids will probably view this very differently than than I was raised. And I think there is a medicinal element that people are starting to acknowledge, like, hey, this mm-hmm. is something. And even if you don't acknowledge that, there's obviously comparisons to alcohol and what alcohol can, how it can affect the person. And I think, you know, for a long time I was raised, which may sound surprising. I was raised pretty conservative on this front where, you know, any, I remember as a kid thinking any alcohol automatically made you not a Christian. And I remember one Mm -hmm. time being at a friend's house and I went to get something out of their, his dad's fridge and there was beer in the fridge and I had like a panic attack. So I was like, my friend's family are not saved. And I was like, literally, you know, so torn up on this. My dad's oh, like, no, no, it doesn't mean that. Like, that's where I came from as a kid thinking, because I hadn't seen my parents drink. It's like, mm-hmm. no, Christians don't do that. Well, you know, I haven't seen my parents smoke marijuana either, right? So it's like, there's still an <laughs> element of that where it's like, this is not something I'm familiar with. What do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Again, this is, this, this can be long, but I'll try to keep it short. I, <laughs> no, I, go for I, it. <laughs> I don't know how long this podcast wants to be. <laughs> I think you have to look at what happens. And I think this is a kind of a, a general rule. What happens when we're on something? Okay. So mm-hmm. you take alcohol because that's something we're more familiar with. If I have, you know, two beers, what kind of a person do I become? Am I more loving, more fun, more open-minded? Or am I a total jerk? And, mm-hmm. you know, I become very angry and, and I think that is way more of the conversation of like, and again, it doesn't have to be like getting drunk even. It's like, hey, what, how mm-hmm. does this affect you? And it's the thing we know with alcohol, we know with any substances, it's not universal. And so I can have one beer, you could have one beer, and it would totally affect us differently. Or I could mm-hmm. have two, you could have, you know, and, and so there's no way you can make a rule and say, hey, two beers is the only thing you can do. And, you know, it just doesn't work like that. And so yeah. I'm more concerned with what kind of a person do you become? when you do this. And, you know, if someone goes, Hey, you know, when I drink, it doesn't end well. And I don't like that version of me and it's not healthy. Then I would say, don't drink alcohol. I mean, it's like not mm-hmm. more complicated than that, but if it doesn't affect you like that and you say, you know what, it, it loosens me up and I'm more relaxed and I, I think I'm kind. And then I would say, yeah, then I think you, you can probably be okay. 
when you go to the scriptures and you go, what were they dealing with? They were dealing with what happened when people got drunk, right? They weren't just talking about some imaginary line. They, they had too much wine. That was never, that was, there's no way to measure that. What they're talking about is when these people are drinking to this point, here's what they're doing. That's the problem. Well, apply that to marijuana. When you smoke, when you take an edible, when you do whatever form of it, right? What does it do to you? Does it make you a better version of yourself? And if so, I'd have a hard time arguing against that to say, well, no, you can't do that because of some arbitrary thing, especially if Mm -hmm. it's legal. And so I think this is where, again, you kind of navigate, all right, what are the laws of the land? What do I get from a morality point of view? And I think there's there's some room here. Uh, there's some freedom in Christ, if you will, to navigate this. And I think we have to do it with an awareness of what works for me may not work for you and vice versa. And that's where we have some grace. And again, you, you find the early church wrestling with this kind of stuff of like, what's what's OK for me? And the stuff they wrestled with was very different. You know, like, can mm-hmm. I, you know, eat meat sacrificed to an idol? I don't know about you, B. I haven't worried about that recently. No. Right. Not. <laughs> not something I'm, I'm worried about. That was it for them. But it's mm-hmm. the same conversation. Like, hey, if I do this, does that cause this person to really get messed up? Well, it's the same thing. If I take, you know, marijuana, does it cause you to get messed up? If I drink, does it like those same conversations can be had, but we can have them with nuance and discernment mm-hmm. rather than just these blanket statements of I'm uncomfortable with that. And I think that's what the church moving forward will do because uh, just as the generation, you know, keeps getting older, that there's going to be more and more people who just have a tolerance, no pun intended, for this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And go, yeah, we're going to we're going to navigate it. We're going to talk about it. And the people that are just absolutely like no way are going to be older and older and not not in these positions anymore. So I think I think this conversation is going to change dramatically in the years to come. It already is. Mm-hmm. And, then, you know, I lived in Oregon for a while. Oregon is real progressive in this front you know so mm-hmm. whatever new substance is out Oregon makes it legal usually first, <laughs> right so people are like hey have you tried uh-huh. this and it's like well no i haven't you know uh it's just crazy so i think i think all this is a conversation in motion yeah and i definitely uh I don't want to say I'll commend the Mormon church, but I do know that the Mormon church, sometimes they pay attention to how things change. And so they've uh, like given revelations to people who ask for medical marijuana and on a case by case, on a case by case basis, the bishop will approve it or deny it. And so like I said, I don't really want to give props because I very much disagree with a lot of what they do, but I think it is important to be aware that just because something's new or unknown doesn't mean it's automatically not allowed. Like we need to look deeper and like you said, see how it affects everybody and have, you know, a more nuanced conversation about it. So yeah, it's interesting about the the Mormons. I didn't know that. It you reminded me, it, it's a little bit like the Amish. Everybody mm-hmm. assumes the Amish are anti-technology. And it, it's it's a little bit of a misunderstanding. The Amish are just slow to to uh, um uh, you know really adopt the new technology. And the reason mm-hmm. why is they want to see how does it play out. What are the unintended yeah. consequences in a culture? So, you know, people kind of will mock the Amish of like, oh, you know, they're, they're have a horse and buggy or this and that. And then they get in a vehicle Then you know, well, mm-hmm. I think they're trying to navigate. And again, they do it at a very yeah. slow speed. But I think that premise is good is let's navigate something. Let's see, let's discern, let's figure out, is this beneficial for us? And if we realize like, no, yeah. this is not then we can make a decision, but to just blanket statement things like the, the church often does, I think uh, you're going to, you're going to miss a lot of things. And that's where, you know, you get some of the, what we would probably consider silly today, like no dancing, no movies, mm-hmm. you know, some of the old school Christian rules 
that, you know, my parents were raised with that now we kind of laugh at, but that that's because they tried to just draw these hard lines rather mm -hmm. than kind of doing what you're saying. So I, I think there's got to be room for it. Definitely. All right. The next question is, what's your opinion on the prosperity theology? It's garbage. <laughs> just plain and simple. It's garbage. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of my least favorite theologies of all the theology out there. It's garbage for so many reasons. It, it, it encourages selfishness in people mm -hmm. to, to add a spiritual dynamic to, prosper, to prospering, to wealth, to success, to say that is what it means. You know? And it's this idea of uh, if you follow God, you will win. I hate that premise. And mm -hmm. that looks nothing like Jesus. Jesus lost. I mean, literally, the cross is God losing in order to gain an ultimate victory. But, if, you know, the prosperity gospel would kind of have the idea of, well, skip the cross, skip the suffering, skip the death, skip all that, just get to the resurrection and be good news. You don't get that gospel without it, right? And so from a, a spiritual point of view, it's garbage. From a personal point of view, what it does to people, I, I cannot stand because it is discouraging to the people that need to be encouraged. It is mm -hmm. discouraging to people say, oh, life's not going well for you. Let me add more to that. And now tell you the reason why life's not going well for you is because your faith stinks. Mm -hmm. And that's why I just, I'm like, this is garbage theology. And if you look at it throughout time, uh, this falls apart. And you look at like specific examples. You can have a preacher in a local church setting who will preach this theology. And for a while, they can do well. But inevitably, something will happen where they have a health issue. They have, you know, in the church, something doesn't thrive, something doesn't go well. And there's no explanation when that happens, right? So when a prosperity gospel preacher gets cancer, there's like no way to explain that. You have to start doing these mental gymnastics of like, what was going on? Why, you know, why did his faith, mm. you know, suffer? It has nothing to do with that. And so I would just plead with anybody, do not fall into that trap. Uh, it makes you convinced of all the wrong things. It it adds a an, a spiritual encouragement to selfishness, which is bad, mm. and it adds a absolute shame and discouragement to people who are having a tough time in life, and that's awful. And so, I think the gospel at its best is uh, an embrace of, hey, we can lose, and we will mm. choose to lose. And we're not afraid of suffering or not afraid of dying because we know that ultimately that is the power of the gospel. That's when Christianity is at its best. Christianity is at its best historically, not when the church has the power and the church is thriving. That's Constantine. That's Christendom. That is where the crusades and the inquisition and the garbage comes out of. Christianity is at its best when it's marginalized and it's broken and it's meeting people when there's a pandemic and the Christians are the ones that rush in and the Christians are dying with everyone else. I mean, that's like the most beautiful pictures of the church historically, and it's the anti-prosperity gospel. So I get yeah. a little fired up on this, but <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 yeah. it's, just, it's garbage theology. Mm -hmm. I, I, have, I have very strong opinions about that. Oh, well, I love hearing, I, I love hearing them. <laughs> I think it's good for people to hear that stuff because they do see a lot of uh, like mega church pastors and TikTok pastors and stuff like that living in that lifestyle. And it does rub a lot of people the wrong way. And they're like, is that what is what Christianity is supposed to be about? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. So 
It's good well, and I, and to I, hear I it. Say that, you know, as someone, I, I led uh, evangelical multi-site megachurch. And I had, I had to realize that even though I don't ascribe to this theology, there is something in it, in the model, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's this fundamental assumption of well, what's a healthy church look like? Well, you grow, you get bigger, your buildings get bigger, your budget gets bigger, you, you know. Mm-hmm. And even if we'd say, no, it's not that. That's what most Christians would either answer or that's how they actually behave in real time, right? Those are the churches that grow. Now, again, there's nothing inherently bad about growing, but if that is the measurement of success, that's prosperity, right? Mm-hmm. If that is the measurement. And so I would say there's a lot of churches, probably the most faithful thing they could do would be to shrink their church, to mm-hmm. live out their faith in such a way that a lot of prosperity people said, I don't fit here anymore. I don't like this anymore. I'm leaving. And the problem is they will take their money with them 100%. You will have less budget dollars. You have less of a church, but you may be the most you know, fruitful version of, of that church's ministry ever. And there's examples of this. One of my mentors had this happen where he preached a series and lost a third of his church. I wow. remember talking to him about it afterward and said, do you, do you regret that? And, you know, he's like, well, I could have handled it more tactfully, but no, fundamentally, that was when our church became who we are today was mm. the willingness to let people go and say, Hey, this is not what success means. And so again, I'm not against a church growing. I'm not against people giving to a church. I'm not against those things, but those things cannot be the markers of success. And if they are, we are subtly creating a prosperity culture, you know, in ministry. Mm-hmm. All right. The next question, it's a long one. So prepare yourself. Okay. <laughs> And do you think Christians are too scared of the world? I've been reading about satanic panic, which I think should be called Christian panic. And there are some crazy stories in churches where people claimed Barbie dolls killed two girls in Argentina, that if you play a Beatles album, you can hear words inciting people to kill and all kinds of stuff. Forbid everything for the sake of the children, put them in a bubble, cover your eyes. Yes, 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 yes. Christians (laughs) are way too afraid of culture. And this indicates to me an insecurity in our mm-hmm. faith, in what we believe, because we, we hold this, this faith that we have like it's very fragile. And, you know, how do you treat a fragile box if you're, if you're shipping something? You know, you mark all over it. You know, it's fragile. You're, you're going to delicately place it, you know, in the car. You're going to delicately place it on the counter. I mean, and you're hoping, right, the delivery driver is going to delicately put it back because you know mm-hmm. – if, you're, if you don't treat it like this, this thing is not going to make it. That is how most Christians live. Like we are just this fragile, please don't, please don't ask me hard questions. Please don't challenge me. Please don't, you know, God, don't let any opposition come my way. Don't let any failure come my way. I mean, we are like the most fragile people. And I think, how, have we totally missed the point? Let's go back to what I said earlier. The gospel is the power of God in the middle of losing which there's actually a word for this, Nassim Tlaib, and is an author, he coined the word anti-fragile, which Mm -hmm. is, as you would expect, the opposite of fragile, right? So what is something that's anti-fragile? It doesn't just mean it's robust, because something that's robust, it'll still break down, it just takes longer to break down. Something that's anti-fragile, according to Tlaib, is something that gets better the more uh, opposition it experiences. Mm -hmm. Now, that might sound like a totally weird concept, like, what would be an example? If you've ever watched the movie Black Panther, Black Panther had a suit. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this movie? I have not. 
You're not seeing Black Panther. I am I'm not, calling you out right now for all I'm the not listeners. I'm not a movie person. I haven't oh. seen it. I, like 99% of the movies, if somebody says, have you seen that? I'm like, no. That's it why was I was just funny. trying to nod along. I was like, mm-hmm. I saw, I saw the, blanks, the <laughs> blank look in your eye. Okay. I was trying. I'll, I'll describe it for you. Okay. Uh, so he's got this suit and his sister makes him this suit. And the suit absorbs energy, right? So if someone punches the suit, it takes the energy of that punch and absorbs it. Then if he punches back, it uses what the suit just absorbs back. So literally there's a scene, it's very funny in the movie, where she tells him the suit's on this rack. She says, kick the suit. So he kicks it and like launches it, you know? And then she's like, okay. And then the suit stores this kick and she goes, kick it again. And he kicks it again and the suit launches him back. And he's like, what Uh was that? It's because the suit had absorbed it. That is the best practical, I mean, it's not practical, but uh, (laughs) visual, there we go, visual (laughs) metaphor of what it means to be anti-fragile, right? Something that gets Mm -hmm. better. Here's what I would say. This is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus on the cross is an anti-fragile metaphor. And not metaphor in the sense it wasn't true. Like as an image to think of, like that's what it means to be anti-fragile. Literally, Satan, the the forces of evil thought, this is victory. Jesus is on the cross. We got God. Like we're literally killing God. This would look like the biggest victory ever. And Mm -hmm. God actually dies. Like Jesus legit breathes the last breath. It looks totally fragile. But if you know that story, it's the opposite. That that is what made Jesus who Jesus ultimately was revealed to be. Not that it made him, but like that displayed, oh, you can't kill God. You can kill him for a little bit, but God is going to come back. He's going to conquer death. And this revealed the power of God. The cross reveals just how powerful God is. It's not just Easter. It's not the resurrection. I would say it's the cross. The fact that God can die to reveal God's power. That's shocking. Well, that's anti-fragility. So now apply that. If I, if I am following Jesus, I am holding an anti-fragile faith, which means if someone pokes it, prods it, challenges it, it should get better. Mm-hmm. It should get stronger. It should emerge in new ways. I should have zero fears of anything in our culture. And I think if Christians operated like that, we would be so much more intriguing to the world. Like so Mm -hmm. much more intriguing. If that was what Christians were known for, like you guys are the ones that like constantly just welcome opposition and then it like makes you better. Like imagine if that's what Christians were known for. Like, yeah. oh, if we weren't like boycotting Harry Potter and Disney all day long, right? Like we were actually not afraid Mm -hmm. of things. Like, oh, we're, we're, we believe we have this truth and we know that this truth is gonna, I I just think Mm -hmm. it'd be beautiful. And so uh, there's an author, Canadian author named John Van Sloten. And he has this idea, says, all truth is God's truth, no matter where you find it, all truth. And that's another premise. Christian, uh, any truth you find anywhere belongs to God. Mm-hmm. So just because another religion says something that is true. So let's say, let's say, I won't make it less controversial. We'll just, an <laughs> unnamed religion says God is love, but it's not, it's not Christianity, right? God mm-hmm. is love. Does that mean it's not true because you heard it in another religion? No. As a Christian, you'd have to claim that and go, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what the New Testament writers tell us about Jesus. Like God is love. Like that's, that's a thing, right? So then we can claim that truth, 
even claiming it in another religion because we know that is true, right? That's what it means to anti-fragile, uh, anti-fragile faith, to live it out and not be afraid of where it comes from. And I think, you know, I, I just think if Christians live this way, it could be awesome, but we don't. So let's not be so afraid. Your faith isn't fragile. <laughs> Neither is your God if you're following Jesus. So let's let's go out there and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I always kind of say you can't grow in a bubble. And so I feel like a lot of Christians tend to want to just stay in the safe bubble, the safe things. I don't want to expose my kids to this or myself to this, but then what do you do? What do you do if someday you wake up and somebody convinces you that one thing you believed wasn't true? Does the rest of it fall or anything? So it's just, well, I it agree. Does. And you. that's what happens to most college students. Mm-hmm. Is they grow up with a sheltered understanding of faith. They don't have the really hard questions leveled at them till they get into college. Till some mm-hmm. professor throws a doozy at them they've never heard before. And they're like, this whole thing is bogus. You right? know what I mean? <laughs> and my point is like, it's not bogus. I'll go sit with any college professor and like, let's talk through what your mm-hmm. concerns are. And if I don't know, I would say, yeah, that's, that's really good. I don't know. I'm going to go dive into that. I'm going to go read about that. I'm going to go explore that. Right. But if I believe that I'm, I have anti-fragile truth, th- there should be no hesitation, no fear there. And uh, we wouldn't lose all of our students in college. Mm-hmm. This is how we raised kids. Yeah. In my I opinion. agree. No, I agree with that. The next question is, what are your thoughts on how the church slash Christians have translated and interpreted scripture about homosexuality? going for all, all the questions today i did. i had to i love it uh gosh this one is so interesting to me because i was raised with i would say a very traditional understanding of this topic mm. um and, and so you know that was what was normal to me and then as i got older i you know started realizing this is more complicated um my student pastor at one point who was so influential in my life, um, later found out that he was gay. And I remember like that, not that that like rocked me, but it illustrated something for me as if he had come out prior to that, he would have never been allowed to have that conversation with me. And the way he impacted my life wouldn't have happened the way it did. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking like, you know, in a weird way, it's like, well, I'm guess I'm selfishly grateful that he hadn't come out yet so he could have that influence in my life because he wouldn't have been able to do that in the church. Now, again, that's horrible to say for him because he obviously wasn't able to express who he was, but I wouldn't have been exposed to, you know, the, his influence in my life, which was incredibly beneficial. And I remember that, that was like one of the first times I started realizing like, we're going to have to figure this out. We're going to have to navigate this. Mm-hmm. So here's what I would say. I have, you know, kind of two, two sides of a coin when I answer this one, I would say biblically, if I'm intellectually honest, I do not find an airtight way to justify homosexuality from a biblical point of view, meaning mm-hmm. there's no verse I can point to and say, see, it's all okay. Everything's fine. God doesn't care. There are, I would, I would suggest three passages in the New Testament, all from Paul, not, none from Jesus, that are the ones that you know Christians say, the Bible's clear, homosexuality mm-hmm. is a sin. When they say that, they're referring to three passages in the New Testament, essentially, uh, I think are the best arguments. So you have to wrestle with, okay, Jesus didn't address it. W- one guy <laughs> addressed it, you know, he mm-hmm. addressed it three times in three different ways. What do we do with that? And so I have to acknowledge on one hand, I do not have 
any killer verse to say, yeah, this is how I make sense of it. But on the other hand, there is this conversation Jesus has with his disciples in, I believe it's Luke 12 or Luke 16. I have to look it up. Uh, and in this conversation, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, there's much more I want to give to you, but you could not bear it right now. Therefore, I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit. And then there's this phrase, who will guide you into all truth? Mm. Now, I've been thinking about this lately. I'm fascinated by that concept. Twofold. One, what was Jesus trying to tell the disciples that they couldn't bear at that moment? Like, what was too much for them? Like, hey, I, I want to like show you something, but culturally, you're just not going to be able to handle. Like, what? Yeah. To, again, why we, we're not going back? Why would we go back? What was Jesus saying to them? Like, you, you can't bear this. It's too much. That's an intriguing question. Second, what does it mean for the Holy Spirit post, you know, resurrected Jesus to guide us into all truth? What mm -hmm. is the Holy Spirit guiding us into? Now, again, most Christians will say we have all the truth. It's in the Bible. Except if you read the Bible and you go, well, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's going to guide us into all truth. It, it implies to me this progression of we're going to keep going. And so it, not in a sense it's going to negate, you know, what's gone before, but like maybe we're going to illustrate some new things. And so I, I loosely hold this topic in that category where I would say, I wonder if this could be what the Holy Spirit is guiding us into. I don't say it definitively. Like, of course, this mm -hmm. is obviously what Jesus was referring to. I don't know that. I just, I just hold that. And I say, I wonder if this could be something that the Holy Spirit could guide us into uh, a, a bigger understanding of what a healthy relationship could look like. Um, and I make room for that. Now, again, Jesus talked about male and female. He references back to Genesis. I, I'm aware of all that. I, I also just have to look at it and go, could there be room for this today? And my kind of personal application or rule of life is if I'm not airtight on something, I don't know definitively one way or the other, I'm going to err on the side of love. Mm -hmm. And so on this one, I'm not airtight on it. I, I know what the Bible says. I've studied it at length. I have some suspicions that maybe the Holy Spirit wants to guide us into some new things and kind of feels like this might be one of those areas to me. Um, but I don't really know either way. And so I'm going to err on the side of love, which is how do I love them? And here's one of the biggest things that's changed for me personally, when I was running a church and I had to be in that seat where mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, you have to make the final call on a lot of these things. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of them is with a, a board, but from a staffing point of view, I, I had to make these distinctions of, okay, well, where can someone who's gay serve? Where mm -hmm. can they lead? Uh, who can they teach? What, what, you know, how much can they get involved? And it was like horrible, horrible I can imagine. conversation because you have to be the gatekeeper mm -hmm. and functionally churches have to do this today because if you're going to go to a community, people are going to ask what, what can they do and what can they do and what can they do? And uh, again, you know, we can say, well, I'm fine with someone who's in a gay relationship. Uh, okay. What about someone in a polyamorous relationship? Mm -hmm. What about, you know, the, the, you know, one that's kind of getting more prominence is what about transsexuals now? Like, where do they fit? Do they have equal access to all these leadership roles and teaching roles? And, and if not, why? And, and where do you draw the lines? And so functionally pastors end up becoming gatekeepers and that's really, really hard to do. And I don't know a great way to do that. And I, I tried my best when I was in that seat to navigate it. And the beauty these days is I don't have to do it. <laughs> So like, yeah. 
I don't have to tell you anything you can or can't do today. I just get mm-hmm. to like come alongside you and say, how can I support you? How can I encourage you? How can I be there for like, what do you need? Like, that's it. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. And I say that a little tongue in cheek because I, I also realize like church is in a predicament here because they mm-hmm. have to navigate this somehow. You have to tell people what, what does this look like? What does this mean? Right. And it's incredibly difficult to do. And so these days I feel like I'm in a much easier spot where I just say, yeah, I just support you and encourage you and be there for you. It's a lot easier to say, I love you no matter what, than to have to make the choice on who can do what, where, and how people are going to react. And is this biblically sound? Or I just can't imagine the pressure of church leaders having to make those choices, especially with sometimes the fear of how a congregation might react. They may have in their heart, hey, I want to mm-hmm. include this person. But then in the back of their mind, they know if I do this, you know, the emails are going to come, the people will yep. leave, the giving will go. And that literally is what happened. I mean, I experienced that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you are radically inclusive in any <laughs> type of way, there will be this fallout to it. And that's really tricky. Definitely. All right. We have come to the second to last question. There's two more. The next one is my husband and I are Protestant Christians while most of our families are lapsed Catholics, new age, and atheist. How do you handle situations when you make mistakes or sin and are called out by family members using our Christianity to expect perfection in us? No one else is treated this way. As I write this, it seems petty, but these things drive a wedge further away from them. That's a great question. To me, it it implies there's something else going on, that there's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the family member that's saying this comment, there's some insecurity there, or, you know, them living out their faith is is upsetting something in their equilibrium, you know, and so there's something that's being bothered, therefore, they feel the need to try to level the playing field or say something. So, I mean, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that other than I would just take that as a conversation of like, hey, you know, you know, that's not what Christianity means. Like, why, Mm -hmm. why, why do you need to say this to me? Or like, what is it that I'm doing right now that's really bothering you? And try to figure out like, is there a conversation underneath the conversation? You know, like, Mm -hmm. these are the words we're saying, but hey, you know, why, why does this bother you in such a way that you feel like you need to, you know, make this comment to me? I would suspect there's something else there. I would suspect mm-hmm. there's there's something below the surface. And, you know, relationally, I would try to get to that to go, hey, did, you know, me living my faith out in, in a certain way, you know, did that make you feel a certain way? Or does this make you feel something about your own journey? Or am I being obnoxious in this? Like, what what is it, you know, that mm-hmm. that is causing this tension? And I would just try to explore that because... Yeah, anyone who understands Christianity, it's not it's not this like idea of like I got it all figured out, right? We're yeah. the people that that we we are shrouded in grace and we embrace it. We we live in grace every day. And, you know, maybe this family member or family members are reacting to Christianity at large, this idea that Christians are very judgmental and the church is very hypocritical, which I would say sure. Yeah. I I, mm-hmm. I hate that too. I hate that the church is known for that. Um, I don't want to be associated with that. I, I want to be a different kind of Christian. It doesn't mean I, I can do it without sinning. It just means like, I don't want to be the one, you know, throwing rocks at everybody else when I've got my own issues as well. And so I, I would, you know, I think it's a very interesting question. I, I, I would 
I'd love to sit down with the the person and go, Hey, tell me more. Like what, mm-hmm. what's the story behind this? You know, what's going on here? Cause I would suspect there's some that's it's striking some nerve that that is the way they're expressing it. And it's, I don't think that's the actual, unless again, they don't understand Christianity, which if they're lapsed Catholics, they probably have some understanding of what Christianity is. But again, my experience people coming out of Catholicism is there's a lot of guilt there that they have a hard time working through. And so uh, grace mm. can be difficult for someone who's been in Catholicism, who has had guilt, you know, if, if that has been a very prevalent thing to you, um, not all Catholics, but there are some that definitely you can tell are still trying to make sense of that. Yeah. So again, maybe, maybe they're feeling guilty still. And they need to work through that and, you know, have that conversation with them. Like, Hey, are you feeling something, you know? And I don't know, I would just, dig deeper and talk. And I think that's the beauty of relationships. Like you hopefully have enough of that relational equity that it can get you through the, you know, the tension of those moments when we don't see eye to eye on something. Yeah. It's good advice. All right. The last one is how do I reconcile my belief in a good and faithful God when people from the same community have hurt me? How do I realign myself with God after losing my faith? I want to give this person a hug. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'll say this, you know, I ended up getting to a place as a lead pastor where I felt like I had two options. I could be successful at my job and, you know, be in that role, or I could do what I felt like Jesus was asking me to do, which I knew was going to be bad. And it, w- it would cost me. And uh, I didn't know how bad, but I chose that door and said, okay, I will, I will resign from my position because what the elders were asking me to do, I didn't feel like I wanted to leave like that or could leave like that. I then went through the worst year of my life, uh, not even comparable to anything else. And mm-hmm. we lost, I would say probably 95% of our friends in the community. Uh, our life group wouldn't return our phone calls. I mean, you name it, I I became, you know, the pariah of of our community. And it it was so traumatic that it it sent my kids into counseling. And this is the part I didn't see coming because Mm -hmm. my kids started asking a question. Uh, Someone's name would come up, you know, in a conversation, uh, so-and-so. And then my kids would inevitably say, are they still friends with us? And it took me a while to realize the pattern that my kids had just gone, come to assume everybody doesn't like us anymore because of what dad did. And, um, you know, that was when we were in Oregon, we ended up having to move. We didn't want to move, we wanted to stay there, but we realized we have nobody here anymore. We have no community. And to say that, you know, that didn't cause me to be bitter or angry or hurt would not be accurate. It, it absolutely caused all those things. The question I got asked in the midst of that a lot was, you know, how are you and Jesus? And for me, you know, I I have spent so much time wrestling my theology of Jesus in a, you know, I would say a non-traditional way in a lot of uh, angles that I was able to separate what happened to me in the church, uh, in my church example, was not Jesus's doing. Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I was able to separate and go, I think Jesus was just as bothered by that as I was. And I think Jesus met me in my grief and in my sadness and was, and was present with us and was good to us in the midst of that. 
now again i say that saying we lost you know everything i would have held dear at that point i you know shy of my family right and Mm -hmm. that that was just traumatic is the only way i can think and it's taken us years to get on the other side of that and so now i would describe that season of my life as a scar in the sense of you know you could you could poke it and it wouldn't bleed anymore and it wouldn't hurt me anymore but it's never going away and i always will have that and so i think <laughs> if you follow jesus long enough you probably get that in some way shape or form you you probably get your own scars where you say yeah you know i might be intrigued by jesus but this this really hurt or this was said to me right and sometimes it's the pastors I would have people tell me all the time, hey, I had a pastor one time tell me this. Or, I mean, people can just say horrendous things. And when, you know, when you attribute respect to someone and then they speak something over you, that can, that can live with you for a long time. It can be really hard to move out of. And I think that's what a lot of people dealing with, you know, church trauma, they're dealing with of Like, I, I, you know, you are a position of leadership and respect and you said this over me or you did this. And like, how do I make sense of that? And, you know, I don't, I don't know how to prescribe healing through that other than to say, I, w- I would hope that you would at least attempt to separate Jesus from the hurt of what was done to you, because I don't believe that Jesus was a part of it. And that doesn't necessarily make it easy to do that. But I think if you can say, no, Jesus, you were with me when this was happening to me, and you were not about this, and this was not of you, and you can separate that then it allows you to kind of rebuild, right? So I talk mm. a lot about, especially with our Community Wine Co. events, I talk a lot about deconstruction because a lot of the people that are interested in what we do w- would put themselves in the deconstructing category. But I don't leave it there because if you just deconstruct all day, you're left with nothing. Mm. And I don't want to be left with nothing. I don't want to have no faith, no belief, no anything, right? Uh, so I'm going to deconstruct everything. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to reconstruct something better to take its place. And I think the reconstruction has to happen in the person of Jesus. So we can deconstruct and go, okay, this was bad. This was bad. This, this hurt. This was horrible. This is, you know, and you can start working through those things. And as you're working through them, you're also going, okay, Jesus, meet me here. Reconstruct this mm-hmm. with me. And there's lots of ways to do this. And, and again, going back to Christian tradition, there's some incredibly cool things. Um, one of my favorite is this thing called cataphatic prayer, which is a super cool old school word. Uh, it's all often called imaginative prayer. It's a type of prayer where you sit down and it's uh, closely related to meditation, where you okay. put yourself in a, you know, in a place where you kind of, you're closing your eyes, you're, you're removing anything else, and you're just going to this place. Well, what you do with this type of prayer is you imagine yourself with Jesus. So you're literally engaging your imagination in prayer time. So, you, I mean, you're picturing, you know, where are you? Pick a place where you feel safe. And then in that place, I want you to imagine Jesus. Imagine having a conversation with Jesus. And then literally in that space, talk through the pain that you have with Jesus and see what Jesus says about it. Mm -hmm. Some of the most profound moments of my life, of my own healing, have been in these kinds of prayer where I invite Jesus in and Jesus either does something unexpected or says something to me in this moment. And again, it's not audible. This is, you know, a type of prayer, which I... If you're not Christians, probably sounds way better to you. <laughs> I acknowledge that. Um, but this is, again, something from our Christian tradition that I think is super cool. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly healing. And so what you can do is actually as a way of dealing with trauma, 
is in that time of prayer, revisit some of the most painful moments and then ask Jesus in that memory, where were you? Like when this was happening to me, where were you? And Mm -hmm. wait until you sense Jesus answer you of like, this is what I was doing or, or this is how I was with you in that moment. And I mean, I could get weepy just sharing stories that people have told me of things that they have experienced of healing in these moments where, mm-hmm. you know, things that were done to them as a kid, things that, you know, someone said to them and just was horrific. And then they go back and they invite Jesus into it as an adult years later. And Jesus drops some profound truth on them. And I, I just think it's so cool. And again, you know, I believe in Jesus because everything that I have found has pointed me to this is the most compelling, profound, beautiful truth I have ever seen. I've never found anything else in the world that can come close to it. Not because some Bible verse told me so, or some person said these are the right, it's because the person of Jesus compels me. And when you get these stories of cataphatic prayer, you know, it's super cool. And I'll, I'll, I'll close with one story. That's not my story. This is, this is, I had someone tell me this. They were, they were doing this type of prayer mm-hmm. and they were um, imagining this scene and they were, they were working through issues that they had in their faith. And in this one, they were working through the Holocaust. It was bothering them. Like, why did God allow that? So in this, this time of prayer, again, cataphatic, imaginative prayer, they imagine this playground and it's all these little Jewish kids playing on this playground. And in this scene, the person realized all these kids are going to die. All these kids are going to die in the Holocaust. And this overwhelming emotion wells up on them. And they see Jesus in the middle of these kids. And the person says to Jesus in this moment, how could you let this happen to these kids? Like, how on earth could you do it? And, you know, just this stark contrast of you claim to be a good God. And look at this. Like, look at, you know, this utter horror. And I'll never forget what they said. They heard Jesus say that. In the midst of that, as Jesus is in the middle of this playground, Jesus looked at my friend and said, I'm going to make it up to them. Mm. And that like, I mean, I still like get just goosebumps thinking about like Jesus taking the absolute worst pain done to us, done to the people around us, done to, you know, people that we love and saying, I'm going to make it up to you. And I would say to anybody who has been hurt by the church, like give Jesus the chance to do that for you. Like give Jesus the space and it doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't make it, you know, hurt any less, but it gives you this sense of like, God is still good in the midst of it. And Mm -hmm. what would it look like for him to make it up to us? And, you know, despite all my frustrations with Christianity and the church, I just can't quit Jesus. I just still find him so compelling. And I think that's why I continue to navigate all this complicated stuff. Wow. I wasn't expecting that story. To, I've never heard of that method of prayer or anything. And I'm like thinking about now how I'm going to have to try it out. Cause that just sounds really, so really there cool. Is, uh, if you'd like to give a resource, there is yeah. a book on that type of prayer called seeing is believing by mm-hmm. Greg Boyd. And it's a whole book just on how do you do that kind of prayer? All right. For anyone who's interested. I'll link it in the description for anybody who wants to check it out. But that's the end of our questions. Uh, Do you want to give your Instagram, your blog, anywhere people can find you? 
Yeah, so I'm all over the place. I have a bunch of projects that I'm working <laughs> on. Uh, so I have a link tree that has all of them. You can find my link tree on any of my socials. Uh, it's just uh, tomorrowsreflection.com is my blog. Depending on which uh, social media you're on, Twitter's at Jeremy Jernigan, Instagram's Jeremy.Jernigan, Facebook is Jeremy Jernigan Words. They should all be the same, but I never got around to them on time, so they're all taken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll link them below as well. So people can follow you and hear more about everything that you have to say. But cool. thank you so much for answering these questions. I really appreciate it. And I think yeah, the people who watch it are going to find a lot of value in hearing somebody with your experience and authority, just being open and vulnerable. So I think it's going to be really great.